Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. reading Joshua 11, beginning with verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Johab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaf, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, in the Arabah, south of Shinaroth, and in the lowland, in the Nafoth door on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites and the Jebusites in the hill country and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, a number like the sand that is on the seashore with many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the water of Moran to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give them over to you, slain to Israel. You shall hamstring hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Memron and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Mishrothmaim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until... They left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to them. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at the time and captured Hazor and struck its king with all the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms. And they struck him with the sword, all who were in it, devoting them unto destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all the land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, and all the lowland, and all the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal God, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the, Lord, the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that he should devote them to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. 
And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Manab, and from all the hill country of Judah. From all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. And then chapter 12. Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took their possession of their land beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise. It gives the list of names there. And then in verse 7. These are the kings of the land which Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan and gives the names of those kings and the lands. And at the very end in verse 24, we read that in total there was 31 kings defeated by Joshua and Israel. You may be seated. If you're a fan of college football, and then perhaps you've been to the College Football Hall of Fame here in Atlanta. I know that Peter and myself have been. My wife has not, nor probably ever will. But if you've been there or if you have not, you know what it contains. As its name indicates, it's the Hall of Fame. Those victories or accomplishments that are famous, that took place on the college football field. Accomplishments of individuals, accomplishments of teams. And if you're a fan of a particular team, you can go and look up those famous players who played for that team, who are inducted into the Hall of Fame there in downtown Atlanta, or you can see the prominent championships and prominent games, and you can remember and you can reminisce. But even then, it's only highlights. It's not all the details of every game that was played, or even every play that was made by that person, or all of the details of a great season that a particular team had. No, it's only a few. The most famous things that are mentioned. Well, as we come to chapter 11 and 12 of Joshua tonight, we have something very similar. We only have the highlights of the victories that Joshua had in the land. They were given the command in chapter 1 to take the land because it had been given to them by God. And we see in chapter 10, 11, and 12 them doing exactly that. Not with all of the details, but just merely with the highlights. And they are wonderful highlights of the victories that the Lord gives. And we read of No defeats here. Sure, there were battles and no doubt men lost, but there is no wholesale defeat like they had at Ai a few battles before. Instead, it says in verse 15 what the Lord commanded Joshua did and what Israel was commanded. They did. And as a result, they had Wonderful victory over their enemy. And through this, we see some of this process of victory and the 
defeat of their enemy and the list of their victories. And so we'll see these two chapters in three points tonight. Victory against all odds. Hardness against all mercy. And lastly, this hall of victory at the very end. First, victory against all odds. We see in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 11, the same thing that had happened in chapter 10. That there's kings that are joining together to battle against Joshua and Israel. In chapter 10, it was the southern kingdoms and the southern kings that gathered together to fight Joshua. And they were defeated. But now we read in chapter 11, it's the northern kings in northern Canaan that gather together to fight against Joshua and Israel. And we see a big difference between the south and the north. In the south, we read of only five kings, five territories that collaborated together to fight. But we read here in the beginning verses of at least four specific kings. Then it says four kings, or excuse me, it says that there was kings of the north, the south, and the west that also joined together. And so if we take the four specific kings and then we think that there are kings, plural, of the north and kings, plural, of the south and kings, plural, of the west of that region, then there is at least bare minimum Ten kings that are joining to fight. Joining their efforts. They saw what took place in the south and they probably said, we need to double our efforts. We need to quadruple our efforts. Whatever it takes. And we read of this large collaboration. In fact, it says that it's the, not only the Canaanites, but the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Hivites. Groups that probably normally would not get together. They are probably groups of people that didn't like each other. That didn't have much in common. They probably had a common hatred of each other. But yet we see that they were unified in this. And this is always true. Is it not? When it comes to the Lord and what is right and righteous, that those that would never get together all of a sudden find amazing unity. We saw this in the Gospel of Mark as we went through it. You remember how we saw that the Herodians and the Sadducees and the Pharisees all came together. And we know that those individual groups really did not like each other. And yet they stood unified in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. There they find, found agreement and unification. And it's the same thing here as well. In fact, we read that it was such a large collaboration that the author of Joshua says, as they came together with all of their troops, they were a great horde. In number like the sand that is on the seashore, with many horses and chariots. We do not think that the author of Joshua is given to hyperbole or exaggeration. 
He is essentially saying that this group that comes against Joshua and Israel is so large that it's impossible for them to count. Not only were they more numerous, but they were better well equipped, as it mentions here, that they had horses and chariots. We know that Israel had quite a large fighting force. This time, the total number of Israelites was probably one million plus, and so we can take perhaps one third of that number to come up with how many fighting men they had as part of their troops. So it was probably a couple hundred thousand that could battle and fight, which is a large number, no doubt. But it's a number that can be numbered. Going up against a number that can't be numbered. We can speculate here that there were probably, perhaps, maybe a million plus fighting against Israel. We're unsure, but we can definitely say that they were outnumbered and largely outmatched. So why is it that Joshua and the Israelites didn't tuck and run? Well, it all comes down to this, and we read it there in verse 6. It's because of what the Lord said. It's because of the promises of God. When the Lord says to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them, slain to Israel. They're outnumbered when it comes to the numbers. They're outnumbered when it comes to the strength. They're very much outnumbered in the human sense of the word. But because the Lord God Almighty is on their side, that is greater than the greatest human odds against them. Because the Almighty, the Sovereign, Lord of Lords and King of Kings is with them and fights for them. In fact, Moses already promised this to them before. We read this in Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. A promise that Moses gives to Israel before they even enter into the land. And notice how applicable this is to this passage that we read tonight. It says, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We see how specific this is to this very situation. They are going up against an army that is larger than their own. And this army has horses and chariots. And yet Moses says to them, even way back then, do not be afraid because you have the Lord. And the Lord God is on your side. Just as he brought you out of the mighty Egyptians' hands, so too he will deliver you from the hands of these enemies. And that gave them the greatest confidence. Greatest confidence that anyone could provide, even against the greatest odds. And that is why it's so important to have a right understanding of theology. And why we stress theology so 
much in this church uh, through the teaching and preaching. And when I say theology, I'm speaking of theology proper, the, the study of God, the study of His character, the study of His nature. Last summer, we looked at the attributes of God. Specifically, looking on certain Sundays about His strength and His sovereignty and His omnipotence. Because that helps us in our own walk. We read about this, about God being a sovereign God, when we hear in the Westminster Confession of Faith this testimony of the truth of who He is. Speaking of God, it says, He is alone, the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and has sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever He pleases. And goes on to say that His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creatures, so as nothing to Him is contingent or uncertain. Do you see what the confession of faith is saying? That God is over all and does all and does all that He desires to do according to His holy will and by His power. There is nothing outside of His knowledge or nothing outside of His control. And it's that Lord, it's that God that is on your side. And therefore you have all that you need. That you find complete sufficiency in God and God alone. And that, as a result, should give us wonderful comfort and hope. Especially when we struggle. Struggle specifically with worry or doubt or anxiety. Have anxious thoughts. Be it about our circumstances in life, be it about the life of our family, the state of affairs in the world, whatever it is. Believe me, I know it takes no effort to be anxious or worry. We do it so naturally. But I think this passage would say that the antidote is God. And I don't say that in a trivial way, but in a firm meditation on who God is, that He is sovereign and has everything under His control, no matter the circumstance. And so as a result, why worry? And what does worry do for you? How does worry make anything better in life? It doesn't, does it? As Jesus says, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life? Does anxious and anxiety add to your life? No, it only takes away. It saps your strength and can sap your faith. And Jesus goes on to say, look to the flowers and look to the birds. Are they ever anxious? Are they ever worried? Do they ever wonder where their food or substance is going to come from? No, they do not. And then he goes on to say, how much more valuable 
are you than the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. It's a gentle rebuke to all of us. And it's a wonderful, firm reminder of who our God is, that our God is indeed sovereign. And Joshua understood that. And through Joshua, Israel did as well as they went into battle against a greater foe than themselves. And as a result, lo and behold, they won. Again, every time, against all odds. Why? Because the Lord God was on their side. And the same is true for us. If we're in the Lord Jesus Christ, God is on our side. That we can believe and we can trust confidently. And we see something else here that God tells Joshua to do, to demonstrate that he is going to help them. You, you might have just overlooked it or, or didn't even think much about it because it may not seem that significant, but yet it was. Notice he says in verse 6 to Joshua that uh, when you defeat your enemies that you're to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. And that's exactly what Joshua does as we read in uh, verse 9. It said, just as the Lord said to him, he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Now why would they do that? Israel didn't have horses. They didn't have chariots. Surely they could have used them to get a leg up on their enemies, to be better strengthened and fortified in the battles ahead. I think the Lord had them do that just as a simple reminder that it wasn't by their might or by their power that they were going to succeed, but it was only going to be through the Lord. Lest they boast and say, look at what we have done. Look at what our hands have accomplished. Look at what we have conquered because of our superior strength over our enemies. Not only would it have been a testimony to the Israelites themselves, it would have been a testimony to the nations around as well. That the undermatched Israel won overwhelmingly. The only conclusion that they could come to is because it was their God that was on their side. And when we commit to the Lord in His ways, sometimes they may seem foolish. The Lord's ways may not seem the better way to do things. In the eyes of the world, they may seem weak. In the eyes of the world, they may seem foolish. The world may look at you cross-eyed and think of you as crazy. Let us be reminded that obedience to the Lord is not only the right way, it's the only way. The only way of peace and ultimate victory. Sure, the ways of the world may gain success, but it's only short-term success, is it not? In the light of eternity, What really is gained? Nothing at all. But those that trust in the Lord, those that trust in His ways, are shown to be righteous. And those ways are shown to be the everlasting ways. The ways of everlasting life and peace and joy. That's why Psalm 20, verse 7, 
We read earlier, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. David was the author of that psalm. How did David know that? No doubt from reading the stories of Joshua, who came before him. And David took courage and comfort from these scriptures of what the Lord did for the people of Israel. And we should take similar comfort and strength from these passages as well. These victory against all odds. Well, second, then, we see the hardness against all mercy. We see another reason for the success and victory of Joshua and Israel and why the enemies were defeated. And we read in verse 20 these words, perhaps that were hard to hear. Perhaps they stopped you in your thoughts, even as we read them earlier. But we cannot dismiss them. We read in verse 20, This truth, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Notice that. Why is it ultimately that these enemies were destroyed? It's because God hardened their heart. And why did he harden their heart? For the purpose of having them be devoted to destruction. Some of the people might say to you, you're Presbyterian, you're Reformed, you're Calvinist. How can you believe that? God chooses some and not others. That he elects some and hardens others. Well, we believe it because we believe it to be biblical, not because we delight in it or think that we find it somewhere in the, 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 the white part of the Scriptures. No, we read it in the black and white of the Scriptures themselves. We read it here in this verse, and we really can interpret it in no other way. And as I said, it's nothing that we delight in. It's nothing that we revel in. Just as Ezekiel says, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Nor do we in the hardening of hearts for destruction. But we do read that God does execute justice and judgment. And what we see here in chapter 11 and chapter 12 is acts of sheer judgment. And we enter into sacred ground. And we do so with fear and trembling and even dread. That God would harden these hearts for the purpose of destruction. And this is not just an Old Testament concept. As you know, this is a New Testament concept. It's a biblical concept. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 9. He says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, 
has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And some might argue, well, Paul's just arguing in the hypothetical there. Well, Joshua chapter 11 is not hypothetical, is it? Nor is Paul in Romans chapter 9. But here we see this principle in action. And we know how it takes place and we know how it happens. In Romans chapter 1 verse 18, Paul talks about this process that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their ungodliness suppress the truth. And because they suppress the truth, they become hardened in their hearts and in their mind. And it goes on to say in Romans chapter 1 that God gives them over to their lusts. God gives them over, hands them over to their sin. And the very thing that they had desired and longed for brings about their destruction. It's like a dog that is on the leash and it pulls and it pulls and it pulls and all it desires to do is to to get off of that leash and then suddenly that leash is let go or that leash is broken and that dog goes sprinting headlong right into an oncoming traffic right into a busy road the very thing that it desired is the very thing that brings about its destruction. And that is a terrible and frightening metaphor. But even as we read this passage, this is even more so. But this is exactly what the Canaanites wanted. This is what they longed for and what God gave them over to. For we read in Leviticus chapter 18 the things that they were engaged in. There we read that they were engaged in idolatry, in sacrificing their children, in the fire to the gods, being engaged in all sort of sexual immorality and deviance. And as a result, God gave them over and hardened them and brought about justice and destruction. And we might say, well, I'm not sure I like this. You know, maybe if God gave them just one more opportunity, one more time, one more chance, one more day, perhaps they would have repented and turned. But we know from the rest of the scriptures that God not only gave them a day and a week and a month and a year, he gave them 400 years To bring about repentance. And that is why God did not give the land to Abraham. But waited 400 years until the time of Joshua. To give them over to this judgment. And give them over to this destruction. And during that 400 years do we see them turning from this evil practice? No, we do not. In fact, the practice got worse and worse. And more and more evil and sin was committed. And even here we read in verse 19 
that there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except for the Gibeonites who we've looked at before. Not one of them was given over to peace. Not one of them even tried to make a treaty with Israel. We think that, or you would like to think that they would have saw what took place at Jericho and Ai and with the five kings in southern Canaan and what destruction took place in those areas. And as a result, they would have come to the conclusion of we do not want to go against Israel. We do not want to go against their God. We want to know more about this God of Israel. Because surely he is the living God. He is the true God. But we read none of that. Instead we continue to read of their pridefulness. Believing that they themselves could do that which the other kings could not. They were hardened in their sin. And as a result their sin led them to their own destruction. Even though God had given them mercy after mercy. And God is a God of mercy and compassion. But he's also a God of judgment and justice. We read of this in Exodus 34. The Lord here gives a description of himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousand Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And we might like it to end right there. We might want to put a period there and say, Yes, God, we want that from you. But it goes on to say, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth Generation. We must uphold both aspects of who God is. His mercy and his love at the same time as judgment and justice. God is both and equally so. In fact, it is through his judgment that we understand his mercy and his grace. Again, Romans chapter 9 where Paul talks about this subject. He says, in order to make known the riches of his glory... He has made these vessels of destruction so that the riches of his glory may be known to the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand. We should read this description of the Canaanites and recognize that we are no different. That in our sin, if God allowed us to remain That we would be like that dog on the leash that would pull and pull and pull until it got what it wanted only to receive its own destruction, receive its own damnation. And what was it? What were the primary sins that the Canaanites were entering into? Well, they were judged because of their idolatry, because of their sexual immorality, and because of their child sacrifice. What do we see in culture this day? What do we see even in our very own culture? The very same sins. Sins of idolatry. Sexual immorality. Of child sacrifice through the form of abortion. We as a country are are no different. And I and you personally would be no different. If it were not for the grace of God. 
And so we should praise God for His mercy and His grace. At the same time, have a fearful dread of His judgments. Turn away from any sin that would lead to that in repentance and in faith in Christ. At the same time, we should also pray for mercy for our country. Because if God judged the Canaanites, surely he'll do the same for the very same sins. I'll end this thought with this note from a commentator. He says, do we find this subject disturbing, offensive, outrageous? Who gave God the right to be that dot, 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 sovereign? But our verdict had better remain stuck in our throats. Don't try to evade the clarity of this text. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And don't think you can escape this God by running to the New Testament. You'll meet the same God there. It's best that you tremble and therefore worship. Indeed, worship is the right response in the light of this judgment and destruction. Well, third and finally then, we see this hall of victory. At the end of chapter 11 and all of chapter 12 is the victories that God gave to Joshua and to the Israelites. And we call this the the hall of victory. The trophies of God's sovereignty and power over these nations. His blessings and His mercies given to Israel. And just like you might go to a home of a decorated athlete or musician and see their trophies and awards on the mantle, that's how we should read chapter 12. These are the victories, the trophies of God over his enemies. But there are some victories, there are some trophies that are a little sweeter than the rest. And we read of such victory at the end of chapter 11, where we read this in verse 21. It says, And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country. And you might think, the Anakim, that sounds familiar. If it does, it's because we read about the Anakim in Numbers chapter 13. There, the spies have come back And they come back to report of the land before they enter in. And we know that Joshua and Caleb give a good report. And so do the other ten. And they say that the land is flowing with milk and honey. But then they go on to say, however, the people who dwell in this land are strong. And their cities are fortified, and they are very large. And beside, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Caleb tries to convince them otherwise, saying, No, the Lord our God is on our side. But the rest of the ten rise the anger and, 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 and become upset with Joshua and Caleb and say, No, we cannot do this. Again, it says, and because we are as grasshoppers in the eyes of these enemies, because there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak. 
And so as we come to Joshua chapter 11, what do we read? Joshua defeats the sons of Anak. Defeats the Anakim. This mythological people who took on almost mythological strength and height. How sweet it must have been for Joshua and also Caleb to come and defeat these particular enemies. The very enemies that before the spies said, no, no one can defeat them. They're too great. They're giants. And we are like grasshoppers in their sight. And Joshua and Caleb and the rest of Israel come and, in fact, do defeat them. Not because they do it, but because the Lord does it for them. And Joshua and Caleb, no doubt, must have thought, oh, if people of God would have listened 40 years earlier, we wouldn't have had to wander in the wilderness. That whole generation would not have had to die And this defeat of the Anakim becomes a part of the history of Israel. And there's another interesting tidbit that we read here. Notice it says that they defeated all of the sons of Anak, but there were a few that were left. It says in verse 22, only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdod. Well, there's another young shepherd boy that will rise up in Israel later, who will come and fight another son of Anak. And that is David with Goliath. You remember there in 1 Samuel 17 that the Philistines are defying the armies of God and specifically Goliath mocking the Israelites. And David must have thought, I remember this. I remember a story of my people being fearful of these giants of the land. But Joshua and Caleb took courage in the Lord and defeated them so many years ago. And so David goes out and does the same. And he says to Goliath, you come against me with swords and spears and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And there he defeats another son of Anak, Goliath. And we see this parallel of Joshua 11 and 1 Samuel 17. The faith and courage of God's people in the face of their enemies. And tonight as we conclude, should we do any less? Is our God any different than the God of Joshua or Caleb or David? No, he is not. God is sufficient for all of our fears. Yes, even abundantly so. So let us trust, let us have faith, let us step in obedience and encourage as he gives and grants it to us. Well, tonight as we approach this table. As I mentioned at the beginning, these are just the summary highlights. We read in verse 18 that Joshua took a long time to defeat all of these kings. In other words, this didn't happen in a summer. No, it took years and years. And many times 
It may not have seemed like victory. As they were battling, that battle no doubt became monotonous. It became difficult. There was struggle. And they had to continue. They had to persevere. And so, we are called to the same. The Christian life, most days, most weeks, most years, probably seems pretty monotonous and not much change. And oftentimes we need to slug through life with challenges and difficulties. And there are few highlights along the way. But as we come every Sunday, week by week, and especially as we come to this table, we get to see the ultimate victory, do we not? The victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over sin and over Satan and over death. And every week we get to recognize through Him that we participate in that victory and in the spoils of that victory, of life eternal, of peace and of joy. And one day we will experience that in the full. Now we experience it just in parts. But one day we will experience it fully. The full bounty of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight as we approach this table then, let us taste and receive all the blessings of victory that are given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.